Announcements before we get into the Word this evening. Um, Natalie's baby shower that's supposed to take place on Sunday, we're going to postpone uh, for a while. We got news from the doctors that the girls are probably going to be in there, they said, till sometime in the fall, to the beginning of fall. And so they're just kind of, you know, it's three steps forward, two steps back type of deal. And they're doing great. They're, they're healthy and strong, but the, their lungs need to develop a little bit more. And, and so uh, they just don't want to send them home too soon. Obviously, we want, don't want them to come home too soon. And so we thought, well, if we have a baby shower and everyone sends a bunch of preemie clothes to the baby shower, then they can't use them. And so if we move the shower until sometime, when we get some time, uh, idea closer to when, uh, that's going to be, we'll do that. So I think we put it on Facebook, announced all of that, but um, just to throw that out there again. The other thing is uh, the youth t-shirts for the uh, youth trip. Uh, we have t-shirts that are going to be available. The sign-up sheet is in the back. We need to take that today or tomorrow morning. We'll be taking it to the t-shirt people. So if you want a t-shirt uh, just to help out for the, for the trip, just sign up in the back. And, uh, we'll get that. And um, is that it? I think there's one more. Uh, continue to be praying for Dennis Hunt. I heard they, they started the, the chemo. Are they going to start the chemo Friday? Monday. Monday. I got a text from Becca um, this afternoon. And uh, just praying that the chemo will help and they won't have to, you know, do too much of the surgery with the stomach. And so we just want to pray for that and for wisdom for the doctors and all of that. So uh, we are in uh, Lamentations chapter 3. If you need a Bible, Richard's up. He's got them in your hand. And uh, we're going to finish up the book of Lamentations tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for tonight and the sweet time of worship that we've had just being able to sing praises to your name, Lord. No matter how tough things may be on the outside and the struggles we face as we come into this this place, this sanctuary, Lord. Uh, Lord, you meet us here and we worship you and we praise you. And, and Lord, it's a sweet time. And Lord, we thank you for this uh, also sweet time of being able to get into your word. And we pray your blessing upon that. We pray for uh, Dennis Hunt. Lord, we pray for a healing for him, Lord. I know they're going to start chemo. We've talked about that. But Lord, would you just... Completely heal him, uh, Lord, of this uh, cancer and just blow the doctor's minds and, and Lord, just uh, do a miracle, we pray, Lord. We believe, Lord, if it's your will, uh, just, Lord, you can do it. And so we just ask in faith and, and pray that you would move and work. And uh, just, again, thank you for this time tonight, Lord. Uh, again, I want to lift up Aubrey and Finley to you, Lord, and pray that you continue just to Strengthen their little bodies, strengthen their lungs, especially, Lord. Just get them stronger so they can breathe on their own. And, and, and uh, Lord, thank you for them and the gift they are. Bless our, our evening tonight, Lord. Again, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We looked at last time when we started the book of Lamentations. Uh, the title of the book comes from the words of the first chapter, really of the chapters 1, 2, and 4. Uh, Eka, meaning, ah, how... Another uh, Hebrew word, ganath, has been used meaning elegies or lamentations. The Greek is thonoi, dirges, laments. The Latin is threni, tears or lamentations. And so you got, oh, how elegies, lamentations, you know, dirges, laments. You get the idea that it's not going to be a happy book. It's not going to be, oh, this is just the joys of following Jesus. 
In fact, we looked at last time there below the hill now known as Golgotha and Calvary, just outside of Jerusalem, there's a dark incline called Jeremiah's Grotto. And it's suggested that's where he sat there uh, and, and observed the ruins of the city while writing Lamentations, the dirges, with, with tears flowing from his eyes. Jeremiah's been known as a weeping prophet. And you understand why. See, having four, or having warned Judah for four decades of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, Jeremiah puts his tears into words once more in a series of these five laments in these five chapters. And three themes run throughout uh, Jeremiah's five laments. There's the mourning over Jerusalem's destruction and desolation. There's confession of sin and the acknowledgement of God's judgment and, and, and righteous, uh, righteousness. You know, judge, God's judgment was righteous and deserved. And then we see a wealth of God's mercies and the certain hope of Israel's restoration. See, for the last two and a half chapters, Jeremiah has been lamenting Jerusalem's destruction and desolation and demise. His mind, his heart is flooded with the images that just produce sorrow in his heart. He compares Jerusalem to, to its and its citizens, to a widow, to a slave, to an, a, an abandoned lover, then to a betrayed friend. Verse 9 of chapter 1 uh, said, She did not consider her destiny, therefore her collapse was awesome. Not awesome like in, oh, how awesome, man. But awesome like in, whoa, that's horribly, horribly awesome. She did not consider her destiny. And how true that is for so many people today. They refuse to see that the wages of sin is death and that there will come a time when mankind will be held accountable for their sin. There's a destiny for all those who know the sins have been forgiven and those who will die in their sins. And even in light of the warnings in God's written word and through God's spoken word, through the prophets, the people did not think ahead to the consequences that would come. And certainly we read as we went through Jeremiah's uh, book over and over again and, and through the first couple of chapters of Lamentations, the consequences of sin. Now we're picking up uh, in, in the book's key verse, chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. But before we do, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Jeremiah says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. We noted last time together that Jeremiah was, was, was really speaking through the pain that he was experiencing. It wasn't God speaking. No, how when you're in pain you say things that you don't really mean. Jeremiah felt as though God had led him down a dark alley and abandoned him. Just left him there rejected. Of course, that, that's how we feel isn't, you know, how we feel isn't really how always things are. He may feel that way, but God hasn't left him. You know, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the reality was Jeremiah's heart was lying to him. God had not forsaken him. This was all a part of God's plan for him. Remember in chapter 1 of Jeremiah, God, uh, we're told that God chose Jeremiah before he was even born. And God remained faithful to him faithful to him through his entire life. So you hear just the pain speaking through Jeremiah. Now, here in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 4 through 20, he talks about his broken bones, his heavy burden he was under, ridicule of the people. And he, and he was looking at the hardships of the ministry that God had called him to without looking at the grace and the mercy that God has given to him. 
And that can be a stumbling block for, for those of us in ministry. If we focus always on the hardships and always on, the, on the, the things that don't go right instead of the blessings that God has done. Jeremiah was focusing on, the, on all the hardships of the ministry. That is until the light comes on. Something clicks in his mind. In verse 21 now of chapter 3, he says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Jeremiah says, all through this, the suffering and misery and pain that I've been going through, suddenly one thing he recalls to his mind, and that brings him hope. What is this thing that, that brought him hope? Look at verse 22. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fell not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I said this as we were going through the book of Jeremiah. Every now and then, through all the darkness, the clouds part. And you see this just shining brightness of the Lord in, in verses like these. I, I mean, it, it's just amazing. These are the two most powerful and wonderful verses in all of God's Word. And when you're going through incredible trials and times of suffering, it's nothing short of, of just transforming to read. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fell not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How did Jeremiah come to this conclusion? Well, we read here that he says, this I recall to my mind. Jeremiah changed his whole mindset. He stopped for a moment thinking about the hardships and all the trials, and he began to refocus. You know, the Bible speaks about renewing our minds. The Bible speaks about bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Jesus Christ. And I think we can think ourselves into a miserable mood. Just have those thoughts going on in our head and, and, and we can think of ourselves in a despair and hopelessness and nothing's going right. I can't believe this isn't happening. Why didn't this happen? And, I mean, you can think yourself into the grave. Or you can set your mind upon the Lord. You, you can renew your mind. You can come into a whole new state of consciousness. No longer uh, one of total despair and hopelessness, but now victory and hope. No longer thinking about yourself you refocus onto the Lord Jesus. It makes such a great difference. In the times of discouragement, in the times of defeat, in the times of depression, if we'd only just get our minds off of ourselves and onto the Lord. That's the secret. That, that, that's the way out. Rather than wallowing in self-pity, get our minds and our hearts on the Lord. Jeremiah, or rather Isaiah 26, 3 tells us, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Keep your mind stayed upon the Lord and God will keep you in perfect peace. Get your mind on yourself and you're going to have all sorts of turmoil and depression. That's what happened in Jeremiah's life. He changed a thought pattern from, oh, woe is me. Oh, this is the end. There's no hope. I've had it. There's no one to help me. I'm boxed in. Then he started thinking about the Lord. Verse 22, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fell not. I mean, as we think about ourselves, we often do become depressed because none of us are all where we want to be. We don't like where we're at a lot of times. And I mean, it was Corey Ten Boom, Holocaust survivor, who said this, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. Jeremiah says, though the Lord's mercies were not consumed. Things are bad, but they could be worse. And it's only because of God's mercy that we are still here. I mean, the fact that we wake up in the morning is mercy from God. God's not under no obligation to keep us around. It's only by His mercies that we have not been consumed. And then secondly, Jeremiah says, His compassions fell not. That word for compassion can also be translated His tender 
love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul echoes the same thing in describing God's agape love when he says, love never fails. God's love never fails. God never stops loving you. God does not love you when you're good and hate you when you're bad. God's love is unconditional. God's love for you is unchanging. It doesn't fail. God's love for you continually is poured out into your life. God's love is not contingent upon what you are, but upon who He is. God is love. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love, First John 4, 8 tells us. See, God's love is very different than, than human love. God's love is not based on feelings and emotions. It doesn't change depending upon the mood that He's in. Human love does that. We say, oh, I love you. you know, you're my dream come true. I'll swim across the ocean to be by your side. I'll fly to the moon to be close to you. But then, oh, gross, you have bad breath. I don't love you anymore. I changed my mind. That's not true love. Love doesn't change depending on, on the mood we're in. So many people today, they have in their mind just the, the perfect uh, man or the perfect woman, and they meet someone and they fall in love, and not with them, but with the idea of them being that perfect man or being that perfect woman. And when they don't meet that standard of a perfect man or perfect woman, then we're no longer in love. That's ridiculous. You were never in love to begin with if that were the case. The love we have for one another is a love that never changes. And if it does change, we just love them more and more and more. That's why we want to see a, a perfect example of true love. We must look to God. God is, is love and His compassion has never fell and never changes. He will always love us. Oh, we, we, we fell and we fall short. But God's compassions never fail. They sustain us and hold us and keep us going despite our sin, despite our failures, despite our deserving of judgment. Great is God's faithfulness. God keeps yearning for us and reaching out to us. At times we may quit on God, but He refuses to quit on us. Until your dying breath, God will never give up on any of us. And that was a promise that God was reminding Jeremiah here. Jeremiah realizes, man, things could have been much worse. God could have been completely justified by wiping the Jews completely off the face of the earth and damning them all to the pit of hell. But that's not the faith that God had for His people. God had mercy. His rebellious people were not consumed. God would oversee the nation's survival after judgment. God's mercy, verse 23, Jeremiah says, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. Man, it amazes me. God is such an extravagant lover. He can't even judge us without reminding us how much He cares for us and deeply devoted to us. You know, like, like the Father says to the Son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. But it's true. To the, the have to take our children through, through discipline like that, it, uh, it's hard. And God will oftentimes take us to the woodshed for a spanking. But man, there comes a day when, when the sun rises again and, and He wraps His arms around us and He just loves on us. As the psalmist cries out in Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. All right, Jeremiah goes on in verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Another two verses to memorize, to underline. God was judging his people at the moment, but Jeremiah wanted them to know. That soon God's painful work would be done. That after the, the discipline, God would bring healing. That's why they needed to wait and not lose heart. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who, who seeks Him. 
You know, there are two dangers in, in the Christian life. First, there's a danger of just sulking in sorrow. You know, when, when God's ready to do a new work and, and you're not allowing God to work in your life because, oh, I just, I, I can't do anything for the Lord anymore. I just, I was a horrible person. And yeah, God forgave me. I just can't do anything. And then the other mistake we made is, is we can oftentimes rush repentance. Okay, I sinned yesterday, but I'm ready to be restored right now. Let, let's get back into it. But there are lessons uh, tied to our suffering that take time to unfold. In Jeremiah 25, 11, God predicted that Judah would serve the Babylonians for, for 70 years. God had a new start planned for his people, but they needed to wait. And he wasn't working according to, the, to their schedule. God had, had his own timetable. Before he would begin his renovation, God had to work the demolition, his demolition. You know, God does a new work on this, but first old strongholds have to come down. And repentance is that, that wrecking ball that comes into our lives that God uses. But it takes time. And we need to be patient. That's why Jeremiah says in verse 26, It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's, it's a good thing. It's beautiful. Not a, a kicking and screaming and, 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 you know, but a quietly waiting on the Lord. See, Jeremiah isn't talking about reluctantly, begrudgingly waiting on God only because we have no other choice, but a calm, reliant, restful, quiet waiting, Lord, you're going to see this through, and I know you have everything under control. He also says in verse 27, it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Good, good advice. In the New Living Translation it reads, and it is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. Man, to learn those lessons when we're young. Because if you don't, man, you've got to go through them over and over again. And I think when you're young, we don't see the value of sticking it out in difficult times. And, and, and again, you know, we're going to have to learn them eventually. Better to learn things as they go instead of continually putting them off by running away from your problems. James puts it this way in James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Getting through tough times builds spiritual muscles. It strengthens your faith. God said, man, I will do this work in you. You're going to need strong muscles sooner or later. It's better to get them sooner. Verse 28. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Jeremiah is saying, don't rescue a man who's being chastened by the Lord. Leave him alone. Let him learn his lesson. Don't interfere with what God is doing in a person's life. No, so often as parents, you see your, your children going through, through trials and difficulties and they go, oh man, I, I need to, to stop them from that. I need to help them in this. I need to work in their life in this way. And God says, no, you know, I worked in your life. Let me work in their life. Don't, don't come to their rescue, so to speak. Let me work in, in their life. Verse 30, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach, for the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men, to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause. The Lord does not approve. I mean, God afflicts, but he's hoping to bring about repentance. Verse 37, who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? I mean, the Lord is the only one that can speak 
with 100% accuracy and have what he says come to pass. His, his word still does. The Lord speaks judgment. The Lord speaks blessing. So Jeremiah says, why on earth should someone complain when they're being judged for their sins in verse 39? No, it's like you know, someone arrests you for shoplifting and you say, well, why am I being arrested? You shouldn't arrest me. Or, or maybe it's like, you know, I just don't like the way this jail is. You know, I don't like this prison. It's not comfortable. Where is my, my you know, mattress that I like? Where is my, my steak and, and potatoes? And you're complaining about how horrible things are in prison. Well, you put yourself in there. You're no place to complain about what has come about. You brought it all on yourself. So Jeremiah says in verse 40, Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to, to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. I love that. Paul says that the same thing concerning communion, to, to, to examine our hearts, to see where we're at with the Lord. And allow God's Spirit to, to convict us and show us where changes need to be made to, to repent and find that forgiveness. Of course, the Jews failed to give God a reason to pardon. They failed to examine their hearts. Therefore, they failed to repent. Now, thinking about that, Jeremiah now in verse 43 leaves that brief interlude of praise and then the, the, the brightness of the sun shining through and the, the white puffy clouds and now the clouds roll back in. And we get the dirge, the lament, the grief, the eulogy. Verse 43 through 47, Jeremiah records all that the Lord has done because of their disobedience. Look at verse 43. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered yourself with the cloud that prayer should not pass through. You have made us an off-scouring and refused in the midst of the peoples. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and snare have come upon us. Desolation and destruction. So he's explaining what has happened Then it really hits home to Jeremiah, verse 48. My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow and do not cease without interruption till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees my eyes bring suffering to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. I mean, the weeping prophet is weeping here. Verse 52. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit and threw stones at me. The waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. I call on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. Jeremiah holds himself up as an example to the nation. At his lowest point, remember when he was in that pit, and we looked at that in the studies of Jeremiah, he cried out for help and God heard his cry. You know, delivered him from the pit. He, He calmed his fears. That wasn't right away. You know, he endured in the pit for a while. And, uh, you know, but he was there to help him endure. And if God does for the prophet, he'll do it for, for, for the people. If Judah cries out to God, he'll come to their aid. Now we know it's going to be 70 years in captivity uh, before God lifts Judah out of that pit of captivity. He'll come alongside her and remove her fears and help her to endure. God always gives his people peace within that pit. He gives them peace within that trial that they're going through. Verse 58. O Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. O Lord, you have seen how I am wronged. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. You have heard their reproach, O Lord, all their schemes against me. The lips of my enemies and their whispering against me all the day. Look at their sitting down and their rising up. I am their taunting song. Repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. 
Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them. And your anger pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. You know, Jeremiah suffered both more and less than the Jews whose city and temple were destroyed. He suffered more because in addition to having to endure the siege and destruction and the captivity, he was hated. He was persecuted by the very people he was called to minister to. And he suffered less in the sense that God was, was his portion. He heard God say, do not fear. He knew that God would redeem his life and consider it a treasure. Jeremiah had a sense that God would vindicate him ultimately and totally. I think as believers, we can all relate to Jeremiah. We're both we're going to suffer both more and less than non-believers as we seek to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on top of that, we have the promise of heaven. Now to back up for a second before we end this chapter. While verses 21 through 26 were written to the Jews, they reveal the heart of God to all of us. Again, verse 22. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. I like the ESV version. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. We used to sing that song here all the time. And it's not that God has to endure us because he happens to be merciful. No, I mean, he'd rather just bought us. It's not that. He loves us so much that his mercies are new every single morning for us. Okay, chapter 4, verse 1. How the gold has become dim. How changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. Now, First Chronicles 22.14 tells us that King Solomon... Uh, used 100,000 talents of gold in the building of this Old Testament temple. So conservatively speaking, uh, a talent weighing 75 pounds, that amounts to 3,750 tons of gold. At today's prices, say $1,300 an ounce, that's almost $160 billion worth of gold. That's an amazing treasure. You know, movies are made about Solomon's lost gold. Of course, when the Babylonians burned the temple, they plundered the gold. What little remained looked tarnished and dim. And that's why we read how the gold has become dim. Much of the gold melted and, and filled the crevices between the stones. And that's why her soldiers moved the stones off one to another and scattered them to retrieve the gold. That's where we read the stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. It'll happen again in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. I hear they're saying you, you can find the stones of the temple on every street corner. Verse 2 the precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. So he shifts illustrations here. God reminds them he was a potter and the nations are the clay. I think, we, you know, we studied that in, in Jeremiah chapter 18 and learned that God molds a nation according to their obedience or disobedience. Isaiah 64, 8, another famous passage passage of the potter and the clay. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, and we are all the work of your hand. I bring this up because whenever you read about God being the potter and we are the clay, uh, remember he's talking about himself in relation to the nations of the world, and the key factor was their response to his grace. And, and sin is a rebellion to God's grace. Sin strips uh, a human being of his dignity and, and robs him of his self-worth, and it cheapens and degrades us. And that's what it did with the Jews in, the, in their city of Jerusalem. Now, from verse 3 to the end of chapter 4, the prophet recalls the final days of the siege. The Babylonian army had cut off Jerusalem for 18 months. Remember, they would surround the city and not allow any resources to come in whatsoever. Verses 3 through 10 describe the famine in the city. Look at verse 3. 
Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughter of my people is cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. Now, ostriches, if you know this or not, they, they forsake its eggs. It'll lay an egg and then have nothing to do with it. You know, it has nothing to do with raising its it, young, just, just no concern. Doesn't even know if the eggs hatched or, you know, what, what happened to it. Doesn't care. Just lays it in the sand and that's it, forgets about it. If they make it, they make it on their own. So, so God is comparing his people to the ostrich and just banning the children because of starvation. Verse 4. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bed, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who are brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. So the, the once upper class, the privileged people are now homeless and hungry. You know, think about Bernie Madoff, you know, this guy for, I mean, for years he ripped off people, you know, and, and finally, you know, it, it was time to pay the, pay the piper and, and, and 2008 he, he lost everything and he's spending the rest of his life in prison. That's what sin will do to you. I mean, here we're reading the wages of sin is equal for everyone. No matter how well off you are or how poor you are, sin has consequences. He goes on in verse 6. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. FYI, you never want to be compared to Sodom. <laughs> and you certainly don't want to be worse off than Sodom. I mean, these verses point to the prolonged suffering that they were going to be going through. Sometimes it's better if it just happened quickly. Oh, just, okay, just let me deal with it now and then have it go over a long period of time. Verse 7. Her Nazarites were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in their appearance. Now their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones and has become as dry as wood. So these, these young men that made the Nazarite vow, commitment to the Lord, they're now walking skeletons. Verse 9. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger, for these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate woman have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. I mean, you can't add much more to that description there. Their condition is very graphically described here. Truth is, we don't really want to picture the horror of it. I mean, it's, it's good that we do because it's a warning that, that uh, what can occur when a nation or person turns away from God, but we don't like to read of this stuff. I mean, the siege may normally nurturing moms cook their own children. I mean, how absolutely horrible it is. All because of sin. And because they refused to, to repent and turn back to the Lord, they were forced to eat their own children. Now, to lighten this up a bit, I could never do that. Some of my kids are way too salty. You know, it's just... <laughs> and besides, they wouldn't let me get away with it. They would have me for dinner instead of me, and they'd have plenty of leftovers, you know. be a whole new meaning to the phrase, a family meal. You know, I don't know. Okay, since we're on a, on a, let's laugh a little bit. What did one cannibal say to the other after eating a clown? Does this taste funny to you? That was one of my favorites. Okay, a couple more. <laughs> what, what, what do cannibals call a TV sitcom star? TV dinner. What do cannibals do at weddings? They toast the bride. I just wanted to lighten up a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Kids are way too salty. 
Now we come to verses 11 through 16, and we read, Because of the sin of the false prophets and the elders, disasters come to them. Look at verse 11. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and has devoured its foundations. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just. They wandered blind in the streets. They defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. They cried out to them, Go away unclean. Go away. Go away. Do not touch us. When they fled and wandered, those among the nations said, They shall no longer dwell here. The face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priest nor show favor to the elders. It's just because of their, their terrible sin, the religious and civic leaders in Jerusalem, they lost all respect to the people and lost the blessings of God. Now verses 17 through 22 recounts the Jews of Jerusalem who looked, looked elsewhere for help and that it never came. The other nations who they trusted them to deliver them, they didn't show up. Verse 17 says, Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help, and are watching we watch for a nation that could, could not save us. Rather than trusting in God to help them and listening to the Lord, they put their trust in Egypt, and Egypt couldn't save them, wouldn't save them, never came. Verse 18, They tracked our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were over, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains and lay in wait for us in the wilderness. Remember in Jeremiah 52, once the walls were breached, King Zedekiah, 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 <laughs> my wife has warned me how I mess up his name all the time. Remember he was captured, he took off into the wilderness, and he was captured and taken back to Babylon. It says they wait, laid in wait for them in the wilderness. This is just saying what happened. Verse 20, the breath of our nostrils, the anointing of the Lord was caught in their pits, of whom he said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. I mean, here's just some vivid imagery. Judah was anointed of the Lord, but rather than trust in the Lord, her king ran from the Babylonians, really to no avail. Verse 21, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of us. The cup shall also pass over to you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. So Edom, they rejoiced over her arch-rival Judah, you know, oh yeah, you got yours, man, we're glad you got yours. And, and how ironic that is, because she didn't know that she was next. The Babylonians would later invade Edom. Verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. Okay, chapter 5. Chapter 5 like chapters 1, 2, and 4, also contain 22 verses, but this is the only chapter that was not written in, in an acrostic. We looked at that last time. You know, chapters 1, 2, and 4, they're acrostic with, with the Hebrew alphabet, but, but uh, not chapter 5, and uh, we don't know why. I said maybe before Jeremiah just said, no, this is just too hard. I can't figure it out. It took me too long. And this final chapter is really not so much of a lament like the first four, but rather more of a prayer. It's a prayer for God to restore and to renew. And we know that Jeremiah just continued to give a picture of what life was like and, and, and now as a result of them not repenting of their sin and being brought into captivity. And so we begin in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our house to foreigners. We become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink and our wood comes at a price. I mean, Jeremiah says that those taken captive now have to pay for things normally that they would have gotten for free. 
Who would have ever thought that you have to pay to, uh, for, to drink water? Well, if you do it today. Verse 5. They pursue at our hills. We labor and have no rest. I mean, that, that's, that's just as ironic as well. One of the areas of disobedience that, that, that God disciplined them for was their, their failure to trust in keeping the Sabbath uh, year. According to the law of Moses, every seventh year they were to let the land rest uh, and plant no crops. And, and the crops meant no harvest that were required. They, they trusted in God. And they refused to do that. And, and so to keep the Sabbath for 490 years, so, so God sent them, into, to, sent them into exile in Babylon for that specific 70 years, each one of those years that they failed to let the land rest. And it says here, we labor and have no rest. But if it had they had, had rested when they were supposed to, then they wouldn't be saying that. Verse 6, We have given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Verse 7, Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their, their hand. See, many Jews would actually be born in Babylon. And, and remember, the Jewish captivity, it lasted 70 years. So in essence, the Babylonian Jews were suffering in exile outside their land because of their parents' sin. And then they complain, the servants rule over us. That is, the, the Jewish, uh, the Jews in Babylon were at the lowest rung of the social ladder that, that, you know, they were the servants to the servants in, in Babylon. Verse 9. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever a famine. I mean, try to exist without the proper nutrients and it weakens your immune system. You become prone to disease and infections and high fevers. All this is just a side effect of famine conditions. And then just to add one more atrocity that you suffered at the hands of the Babylonians, we read in verse 11, they ravished the woman in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands and elders were not respected. Young men grounded the millstones. Boys staggered under loads of wood. They were humiliated. They were tortured. They were brutally murdered. Verse 14. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their, their music. I mean, the, the leaders of the city always gathered at the gate. That's like the city hall of the city and it was a, the, in ancient times. But not after the city was under siege. It was vacated. It was abandoned. As well as the young men stopped playing their music. We see there. I mean, they, the, the Jews loved their music. They, they enjoyed gathering to play and sing and dance, but the pop music of Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day had been replaced. Now they're just singing the blues. Verse 15. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. Finally. Near the close of this book, there's a breakthrough. The first step in overcoming a problem is to admit that there's a problem. Here's the Jews get honest. They wore it well and they moan. They say, woe to us, for we have sinned. Man, it's only when we confess our sin for what it is and cease with our excuses that God can begin to work again in our lives. To say, listen, that was sin in my life. Lord, I confess it. I turn from it. Instead of making excuses for it. Oh, it was this or it was that. Need to repent and turn from it. You know, we looked at last night in our men's study. Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
Repent. Turn and go the other way, the other direction. Make those changes in your life so that the Lord can refresh your life. Verse 19. You, O Lord, remain forever. You're thrown from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Of course, that's not the case. God would restore Judah just as he, he promised he would. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 36, God made a new covenant with his people. And, and he basically said, as sure as the sun rises in the morning and sets at night, God will sustain Israel. God is not done with the nation of Israel. Finally, verse 21 Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. God has not utterly rejected them. I mean, the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, tell the story of God's faithfulness to Judah. He did bring them back. Just as there were three deportations of the Jews to Babylon, three waves of Jews returned in 535 B.C. under Governor Zerubbabel, 458 B.C., led by Ezra the priest, and then finally in 444 B.C. with Nehemiah the wall builder. Man, this whole story, Jeremiah Lamentation, it's brutal. The whole Babylonian invasion and captivity. But it was a work that God did as a loving father to his children to discipline them. And it worked. The nation was preserved. They returned to their land. Jesus was born to be Savior of the world. Now because it's this, this book ends on a negative note when it's publicly read. Verse 21 was customarily repeated after the reading of verse 22. So they would read verse 22 first. Unless you have utterly rejected and are very angry with us, then verse 21, turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days of old. I like that. Let, let's end on a good note, they say. Let's not end on a bad note. What a prayer for any of us that, that we moved away from our close relationship with the Lord. If I've turned from the Lord, Lord, turn me back to you, Lord. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I think if anything we can learn from the book of Jeremiah and Lamentation is, is don't mess around with sin. There's consequences to it. And as soon as the Holy Spirit convicts you of whatever it is, stop where you are, dead in your tracks, turn and turn to the Lord. And God will do that work in us. Let's pray.